Please again turn in the back of the Blue Psalter hymnal to page 5. Because the Athanasian Creed is our guide to the truth of God's Word tonight. So we've set aside a couple of weeks to work our way through, to some degree, the ecumenical creeds. which faithfully summarize the basic teachings of the Bible and serve as our standards, therefore, in this church. Keep that open as we'll be making reference uh, to that creed throughout the course of the sermon. And then turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, right at the end of his gospel, page 1550, the Bible's in the benches, beginning at verse 16. You'll remember that the creeds are dealing with particular heresies that arose in the Christian church early on in its existence. Of course, those are heresies that remain evident among people who profess to be followers of Christ even today. And at the outset of the sermon last Lord's Day evening, we read a passage that clearly labeled Jesus as the Lord of the Old Testament. It was a New Testament passage which looked back on a prophecy of the Old Testament and called Jesus the Lord who was mentioned there. And that was one of the indicators that we saw the framers of the Nicene Creed using to confidently assert that Jesus is true God. Because the Lord would not share his glory with any other. If only the Father was the Lord, then he certainly would not allow Jesus to call himself the Lord and for people to think of Jesus as fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, referencing the Lord exclusively. And we have a similar text tonight in Matthew, because, of course, the Athanasian Creed is not addressing new heresies, per se. They're addressing the same heresies, that spring up in different forms. We'll say more about that, but Matthew chapter 16, I trust that as you hear the Father, the Son, and the Spirit being mentioned, you'll already anticipate why we're reading it. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, this is God's Word. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." 
And just as God the Father would not share His glory with Jesus unless Jesus was the one true God by ascribing to Him the title of Lord in the same way God the Father would not tolerate Jesus being worshipped. Jesus would not tolerate being worshipped here. And certainly Jesus would not instruct the baptism of, baptism of those whom God was saving among the nations in His name along with the Father's. The Father will not. He has never shared His glory with another. He is a jealous God. And therefore when He commands, when Jesus commands that the disciples baptize the nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is an obvious evidence that Jesus is true God. Yet another scriptural basis, the framers of the Athanasian Creed. Athanasian Creed after the champion of the Orthodox Christian faith, Athanasius. Athanasius himself did not write this creed, but it is a summary of his basic beliefs founded on the Word of God and this and other passages that Jesus is true God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, tonight I just want to explain to you why if the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed have already addressed the heresy of denying that Jesus is God, why do we also have to have the Athanasian Creed? I mean, that's a good question. Not only that, but we see, don't we, the redundancy between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and now the Athanasian Creed. Sure, there are things that are unique to the creeds as we progress through them. But so much is repeated. And as is it really necessary? That's the question that we want to answer tonight. Suppose there's a woman, then, who goes to the doctor and is diagnosed with cancer in her lungs. And she is prescribed a course of treatment, chemotherapy and radiation, and she endures the treatments. And the subsequent, subsequent tests after the treatments come out clean. Wonderful. She is cancer-free in her lungs. However, six months later, the same woman returns to get her cancer checkup and they take her tests and it turns out that there is still no cancer in her lungs. But now they have found that there is cancer in her stomach. And what they discover is, they believe as far as they can tell, that the cancer that's in the stomach has been there as long as, at least, the cancer in the lungs has been. Now, if you heard this about this woman, you wouldn't walk up to her and say, well, isn't this just a fantastic situation? Everything is wonderful. I mean, the cancer is gone from your lungs. You're healthy. Would you say that? No, you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't say that because she's still sick with the same kind of cancer and it doesn't matter that it's in a different place or in a little different form because if she stays sick, she will certainly die and she doesn't want your cheerful voice talking to her like everything's alright. You see, there were people in history, and there are variations of those same people today, who would say that they have no problem professing 
the second article of the Apostles' Creed and turn your page to number three there to hear it. There are people in history and variations of the same people today who say, I have no problem saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And then turn the page. They say, I have no problem confessing from the Nicene Creed these words, the second paragraph. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. I have no problem confessing that at all, but somehow these people would still maintain that Jesus is not truly God. They would still maintain that cancerous, heretical, soul-damning idea that Jesus Christ was not true God. They would say that they believe what the Apostles' Creed said. They would say that they believe what the Nicene Creed said. But they would take those words and they would twist them. And the heresy would expose itself in a very different form. And the church at points along the way would look and say, well, I thought we already settled this. But you people are expressing the cancerous heresy that you have believed all along in a different way and therefore we need to come together and answer these attacks against the truth in a more expanded way. In a way that addresses a different symptom of the same heresy. We would say to them what is summarized in the Athanasian Creed, Articles 1 and 2, whoever will be saved, it is necessary that you hold the Catholic faith. Which faith except everyone does keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. You must keep what we have said comes from the Word of God about who Jesus is in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, not in your piecemeal way, where you take the words and you twist them out of their context and you cause them to mean something else and you are being intellectually dishonest about it. You are redefining words in a way that you know they were not intended but you continue to do that to somehow put on the guise of belonging to the Christian church. And you're all familiar with this. If a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon ever comes to your door, if you ask them if they're Christian people, they will say yes. And if you ask them if they believe in Jesus Christ, they will say yes. And if you ask them if they believe that Jesus Christ is God, they will say yes. Why? Because they don't know what you're asking? No. Because they're lying. They're either very ignorant or they're lying to you, as their teachers do. Because they're very aware of what the Apostles' Creed says. And they're very aware of what the Nicene Creed says. And they want to affirm to the masses that they somehow are in line with the Orthodox Church by affirming the words even of those two creeds. That's what was happening in the context of the early discussions about the natures of Christ and about the Trinity. People would dishonestly, intellectually dishonestly, tell people they agreed with others when they in fact did not. And so the Church had to be even more specific about what we mean when we say what we said about Jesus in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. That's why we have the Athanasian Creed expanded as an antidote to the poison 
of Arianism, the poison of believing that Jesus is not true God. And tonight, I just want to give you five examples, and they'll be very brief. Five examples of how someone could still supposedly confess the words of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but deny that Jesus Christ is true God, and show you how the Athanasian Creed answers those ideas. Someone comes into church first and says, I believe in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus. I believe in the Nicene Creed. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I even believe that Jesus is of the same substance of the Father. I believe that Jesus comes from God. But His Godness is of a lesser qualitative glory. Yes, Jesus' majesty is divine and far above our own thinking and experience, but it is not quite to the majestic level of the Father. Now what in the Apostles and Nicene Creed explicitly refutes that heresy? Well, you'll be right to answer, well, I mean, it's the obvious logical implication, the obvious biblical implication of what we confess in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but specifically, does anything in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed unambiguously show that there is no qualitative difference between the divinity of the Father and of the Son? And again, you'll say, well... Kind of, because in the Nicene Creed it calls Jesus Christ very God of very God. And doesn't that mean that there's only one quality of God? And that Jesus is that? And the answer is, well yes, that's exactly what it means. But you see, the heretics were able to come in and use those words. And to the, to the hearing of some, it left the question of open whether or not they were really heterodox. Were really not part of the Orthodox Church. And so we had the answer in the Athanasian Creed with Article 6. The Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is all one, and the glory is equal, and the majesty is co eternal. You may not point to the Scripture and talk about the humiliation of Jesus as He comes into the world humbling Himself to do the work of redemption and conclude from that, you heretics, that somehow His divinity, His glorious divine nature is of a lesser quality than God the Father's or the Holy Spirit's or that His majesty somehow is, well, certainly higher than humanity's but not as glorious as God the Father's. You may not say that. You may not take the words of the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed and drive that heresy through them. It's the same false teaching. It's the same denial of Christ. It's the same worshipping of another God. It's the same idolatry, but it comes in a different form. I'll give you a second example. Somebody comes into the church says that I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I believe that He is of the same substance of the Father and I believe that He comes from God. But His Godness is less mysterious and less transcendent. It's less other 
than that of the Father. Because after all, we know more about Jesus than we do about the Father. I mean, we've seen Jesus. And we have a testimony of Jesus walking the earth. So He's not as mysterious and transcendent over the rest of humanity than the Father is. And so we needed to respond to that. Because we couldn't say that anything explicitly in the Apostles' Creed or in the Nicene Creed would address that heresy which reared its ugly head in the Christian church. Article 9 of the Athanasian Creed, The Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. And what does it mean to be incomprehensible? It means that your intelligence and your wisdom is so high and so glorious that it's altogether in a different category than human wisdom, completely. That God the Father is so mysterious and so transcendent and so glorious and so other compared to us that we would never, even if we were morally pure and exercising all of our moral faculties, even the most intelligent person that ever lived, would never be able to fully comprehend, to understand the glorious mind of God. Why? Because if they could, they'd be God. Only God is so glorious that He is able to understand Himself fully and appreciate fully the depth of His own being and of His own mind. And the Son is to no less degree incomprehensible The Son is incomprehensible and the Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. To drive a wedge through the transcendence of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit is the same old heresy. It's denying in every way that Jesus is God. It's denying in every way that Jesus is God. There's a third one that we've addressed specifically. A new sort of wedge that people try to drive into the Orthodox teaching of Christ to lead people astray. It's that A person walks into the church and says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He is of the same substance of the Father. I believe that He comes from God. But His Godness is less powerful than the Godness of the Father. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that His power is not very strong at all. I'm not even saying that Jesus is not almost infinitely more powerful than anything that you can even imagine. But I'm just saying that there is an emanation of Jesus from the substance of the Father, which means He comes from the substance of the Father, and therefore, because He comes from the Father, He's begotten, right? I believe that. He is a little less powerful than God Himself in some way. He has the divine power to be sure He is clearly more powerful than all of us, but it is to a lesser degree than the power of the Father Almighty. To which we say, Article 13. Likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty. There are not degrees of power among the Trinity. There is one degree of power within the Trinity 
And it is described in that one word, Almighty. The Lord is all-powerful. He can do all of His holy will. There is nothing outside the scope of the Father's power, nor the Son's, nor the Holy Spirit, because they are one God. They share in the same divine nature. A fourth one. Somebody comes into the church and confesses the words of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and says, Well, I believe in Jesus. And I believe that Jesus was God, maybe even from all of eternity, but at some point... He set aside his divinity and became a man. He changed from being God into being man. So it would be true when you say you believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, and the Apostles' Creed, and all of the further statements there, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, and the Nicene Creed. It would be true of Jesus if you're talking about Him from before all worlds. And that was certainly true on into a certain point in the future, but you see at the Incarnation, Jesus became a man. And you say, well, I think the line in the the Nicene Creed, by whom all things were made, would refute that, but maybe not as specifically as the church would like to have refuted that idea. And so we answered in the Athanasian Creed with Articles 30 and 31. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, the Son of God is God and man. God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds and man of the substance of His mother born in the world. Notice how we confess that. We don't say He is God and then later He is man. Or that he is God or he is man. Or that he comes in the phases of existence of being God and then later transforms himself into being a man. It says he is God, Article 31, of the substance of the Father and he is man of the substance of his mother born into the world. You see, we are just clarifying something that we have already stated before. As the heretics are trying to capitalize very dishonestly on the meekness, the naivety of many of the people of God who are not trained to uh, watch out for these things. This church is always susceptible to heresy as it rears its ugly head in new recycled forms of, of old arguments against the truth. Jesus, maybe he was God at some point, but he changed into man. Well, how do we argue against that in the creeds? Well, here you have it. This is why we needed the Athanasian Creed. To specifically address that perverse idea that somehow Jesus, who was once God, laid aside being God. Take passages like the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus humbling himself. The word that Paul uses there empties himself. And some people have interpreted that passage. Heretics like this means that he emptied himself of his Godhood when he came into the world. Did Jesus empty himself of his Godhood when he came to the world? No. His divine nature was united to his human nature even when he was a little baby growing in his mother's womb. 
His divine nature remained united to His humanity even when He was laying in the grave. And of course, everywhere along in between. He is God and man. And we wanted to make that more explicit in the Athanasian Creed. And a fifth way. And isn't it sad that there are other ways? I mean, isn't it sad, pause for a minute to think that the obvious plain teaching of the scripture that Jesus is God you know, would not stop the heretics at some point from even trying to argue. I mean, it's one thing if they said, you know what, fine. That's what the Bible teaches. We just don't agree with it anymore. But I mean, isn't it just miserable and sad and frustrating that people will take the Bible itself and twist it over and over and over again to keep coming up with everything instead of embracing the truth? That's just an obvious indication of the satanic nature of heresy. Paul speaks of the doctrine of demons because you could hardly think if you just see the common man on the streets, even the common religious man, you could hardly understand, even by common grace, how this person could so persistently drive at the root of the Christian faith, the the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and try to come up with something to overthrow the truth. He does it because, as Paul says, these people have been taken captive by Satan to do his will, promoting doctrines of demons. Satan prowls like a lion to devour the unsuspecting people in churches that won't even warn us about these things. Yes, but they do have a fifth, and they have many more that we're not going to make time to address tonight. A fifth thing, somebody comes into the church and says, I believe in the Jesus of the Apostles' Creed and of the Nicene Creed, but maybe what happened is, when he became man, it's not that his godhood completely was taken away, because we know that wouldn't make sense, so maybe Jesus was God from all of eternity, and he became a man, but kind of what happened is his manhood swallowed up his divinity, or you could think of it in the other way, like his divinity, his being God, has swallowed up most of his manhood, so really, he's not God or man, he's like a third category. And you can see the light bulb going on for some, oh yeah, that's it, he's a third category. He's not God, he's not man, he's a third kind of a thing. And the problem with all you people in the Christian faith from all time is that you are the rationalists. You are the ones who insist that you must understand everything where it makes much more sense to think that Jesus' divinity somehow got swallowed up in his humanity or the other way around. His humanity got swallowed up somehow as divinity and now he's this third category. And that makes a lot more sense than what you people are saying. And so we had to answer Articles 32 and following. He is perfect God and he is perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. He had body and soul as a true man just like all of us sitting here speaking and listening tonight. He was a human being in the same way that we are human beings. Sin accepted. Of course, we know the reason for this, don't we? That a third category could not be a substitute for me on the cross. 
What good is a third category thing if God is a just God and demands that if man sins, man must pay for his sins? If Jesus is a third category, then either I'm not saved or God is unjust and our whole religion is a joke in the first place. Article 33, he's equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Who although he is God and man, Article 34, yet he is not two, but he is one Christ. He has two natures in one person. He is one person, Article 35, not by the conversion of the Godhead into flesh, you see, but by the taking of the manhood into God. One person altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by the unity of his person. Two natures. He's not a third category. He is true God and true man. You know, if he's not true God and true man, if he's not true God then he cannot be our substitute either because he does not have power in his mere humanity to take an infinite weight of punishment for me on the cross. And so if you want to turn him into a third category as the heretics have done, if you want to say that you believe the words of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but deny that he is true God and true man, then you don't have a Savior. Article 44 we believe, we confess, as members of this church, still yet today, that this is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. May God give us the grace to be submissive to the Scripture and to be watchful against those who would twist the Word of God and twist the faithful witness of that Word in the church so that Christ may be honored by us and among us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. And we thank you for our glorious substitute, Jesus Christ, whom we, without reservation, worship and adore. And to whom, along with you, Father, and your Holy Spirit, we offer our children in baptism. And under whom, Father, Son, and Spirit, we gather together to worship you. And for whom, we hear the call to hold fast to the truth and to take out the trash of heresy and to gird up our loins to learn more about your word and to see its importance and not to give ourselves over to mere feelings and emotions but to understand the primacy and the importance of doctrine to the glory of your holy name Lord, how we long to be relieved from this age of 
impurity and this age of, of heresy and this age of our own weakness into the presence of, of the glorious Trinity where we may be awestruck by your majesty and incomprehensibility. And we ask these things and praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Our song is number 318. So our closing song, 318, the fitting song of praise to our Holy Trinity, 1, 2, and 4, 318.